I'm Sarah Jane, or SJ, and I'm the intern here at EVM. I grew up in Rochester, New York, and went to Appalachian State, North Carolina, go Nears, and um, then moved up here and started working with RUF, and I'm so excited to be here with y'all tonight, and especially if this is your first time, we're so glad you're here. Um, I recently discovered that the first Harry Potter book, The Sorcerer's Stone, um, audiobook is free on Spotify right now, so run, don't walk, and... <laughs> If you haven't already um, seen it, yeah, go, check it out. And um, so in the book, when Harry is spending his Christmas break at Hogwarts, um, he stumbles upon the mirror of Erised and sees his family in the image that is reflected back to him in it, even though they aren't physically there. And he becomes so entranced by looking at the mirror that he goes back three nights in a row just to sit and look. And one of those nights, he runs into Dumbledore, who's the headmaster of the school, and he helps him understand what's happening in the mirror and why he's seeing his family. And they don't say this in the book, and maybe it's obvious and I just didn't know. I didn't know this until college. But Iris said is the word desire backwards. So essentially, when Harry was looking in the mirror, he was seeing what he desired most. To be loved, known, and for the world to be made right with those he loves no longer missing. And when Harry's friend Ron looks in the mirror, his reflection shows him being valued, accepted, successful and loved, which if we're all being honest with ourselves and we got to look into the mirror too, our image would reflect our lives if our relationships weren't broken um, or messy, if we weren't messy and broken, us without our anxiety, without depression, without constant feelings of FOMO, without a sense of, and with a sense of being really loved. For also being honest with ourselves, the half-busted mirror on the back of your dorm room door from Walmart that's like kind of feels like a funhouse mirror is like really distorted. Um, that probably doesn't um, reflect of what you would see in the mirror of ears said too. And the passage we're looking at tonight um, is from the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. Um, and here at RUF, we believe Bible is God's word to us. And it speaks a lot into the way we see ourselves and our busted mirror and our desire for broken things to be made whole and why they're broken in the first place. Um, so tonight we'll be looking at what this passage in Genesis means about our brokenness, our relationships, and what the hope in all of this is. So before we jump in, um, let's pray and seek God to help us understand his word. Uh, God, thank you so much for these friends here tonight. Thank you for um, worship team and from Morgan running the slides and um, for this time to be together with you and to unpack what your word is saying here to us in Fleming 101 on a Wednesday night. Um, thank you for these friends and making it possible for us to gather in person. Just pray you sit with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So prior to this passage that Steve read tonight, um, in Genesis 1 and 2, the whole world and all the universe had been created. God had quite literally breathed night and day and water and earth, the stars, the universe, and man and woman into reality. Just a casual day. And he placed the first two human beings, who from a biblical perspective are our first parents, into a place called Eden, which existed in about present-day Middle East. So after God had formed the whole universe and created every living creature, he had called it good. But when he created human beings, he said they were very good. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen a sunset over Lake Champlain, it's hard to believe that he called us, his children, even better than that and more valuable than that. And um, yeah, and he, like John was saying last week, 
he made human beings in his own image, meaning we resemble a part of who God our Father is. So to set the scene of this passage, God has just entrusted Adam and Eve with naming every living creature and to tend to the garden. There was mutual love, trust, and care between Adam, Eve, and God. In this passage, however, everything changes. This passage is also referred to as the fall because it changes the entire course of life itself on earth. While you may be thinking this is some weird old story that doesn't apply to our lives today, it bears a lot of weight into the way that our world looks and how it's broken today. So while Adam and Eve were made good, the serpent enters the picture, or who the Bible calls Satan or the deceiver, which feel like really unrealistic names, but this language helps reflect the gravity of who the serpent is. And he essentially tells Adam and Eve that while God had loved them, trusted them, and cared for him, them, he was holding something out. He is telling them that God is selfish, he's untrustable, harsh, and unloving. And what God has really told Adam and Eve, which we see in Genesis 2, was that he said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. But the serpent is taking this piece of truth, and he's twisting it and making it something different, and making Adam and Eve believe that he was leaving the fruit of this tree out because he wanted to keep them from something good. And up until this point, Adam and Eve had never questioned God or his love for them. And the devil isn't just saying God isn't good. He's also saying you are not good enough. You see this in verse 5. Um, the devil says, For God that knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. And the irony here, of course, is that he's talking to an image bearer, right? It's someone who is already like God. But the devil is implying that something is missing. It's not enough. You're not enough. Embedded in this lie is another lie, too. And this lie is that you and I can be more like God without God. Um, and all of these lies, that God isn't good, that we aren't good enough, and that we can be like God without God, all of these lies into, into our bloodstream. There's this really small town, little known artist. She goes by Taylor Swift. She puts what's happening here really well. She says, because baby, now we've got bad blood. You know, it used to be mad love. So take a look at what you've done, because baby, now we've got bad blood. Hey, now we've got problems. I don't think we can solve them. You made a really deep cut. And baby, now we've got bad blood. Hey. (laughs) And because in this scene, when the serpent slides into the picture and encourages Adam and Eve to forget about their love of God, it shakes their faith in God. And when we start believing that God doesn't really love us, we become susceptible to anything and everything like a sponge. And in verse 6, when they decide to move against what God said, we see what used to be mad love and good and beautiful become different. They aren't more aware or more godlike, but see themselves and one another as bad and wrong instead. Their vision is just clouded with lies. So we see Adam and Eve doubt God's love and promises in verse 6. You can see this all in your handout. Um, They feel shame of their bodies and who they are in verse 7. They fear God finding them and seeing them in verse 8. And they shift blame against one another in verse 12. And at this moment, shame enters the world for the first time ever. 
And in your life, I'm sure you've felt or experienced all five of these reactions in one moment, almost every day or close to it. I know I have too. Because just like we can see a resemblance in the traits of our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents and ourselves, like having our mom's eyes or our grandpa's nose, we still carry this doubt of God's love or bad blood, as T. Swizzle puts it. And this question of, can I really trust God, and does God really love me enough to see that I don't, things I don't want to see, keeps us continuously longing for the original vulnerability in the garden, which is a place where we are fully seen and fully known and fully loved. And this original vulnerability can never occur again until Jesus comes and makes everything right again, which we'll talk about in a minute. But their sin caused them to feel shame and flee from God. And the shame we see here with Adam and Eve and in our own lives is different from guilt. Brene Brown, who studies vulnerability and shame, puts it really well. She explains that while guilt says, I made a mistake, shame says, I am a mistake. And shame tells Adam and Eve that they're flawed and unlovable, and shame doesn't bring them to God and leaves them blaming one another and covering themselves with fig leaves. We see a really similar version of this, same voice of shame, that leads us into destructive ideas and behavior in the hit 2010 movie, Toy Story 3, when Lotso Huggin' Bear <laughs> tells Woody and Andy and all the other toys that they weren't good enough to be Andy's toys and that they were unwanted, and that they're unloved, which is why they were um, at the daycare instead of Andy's room now. And their belief in what Lotso says leaves them hopeless and worthless and shameful feeling. And shame is the biggest driver of our day-to-day lives. Because it runs within this bad blood we still carry and is what tells us we are not good enough today and leads us covering our pain that we feel not with fig leaves but with friends who don't actually see us or care about us or numbing the pain with binging Netflix or alcohol or porn or whatever you numb yourself with. And this voice of Satan and this lie we continue to believe um, will keep separating us from believing we are worth being loved. It keeps us trapped in speaking inward instead of speaking outward to a God that cares about us and sees us. And regardless of how complicated our mess is, that we think it is. And this lie that you are unloved and unworthy is the one the serpent told Adam and Eve. And it's the one he tells us today, too. And right before um, Adam and Eve ran into shame to hide from God, Adam was singing and rejoicing in Eve. And now there's distance and absence of love and vulnerability between them. And we see this today in our own relationships, too. Instead of feeling guilt for something we've done wrong, leading us to repent and ask for forgiveness from our friends that we've hurt, um, shame pushes us to avoid confronting them and hiding behind texts to other friends talking trash about them. Or this could look like avoiding real vulnerability with someone and ghosting them to avoid looking at what you're really feeling or getting wasted or high every night to avoid feeling emotions that you don't want to look at, or continuing to hang out with a destructive group of people because you don't believe um, you deserve friends who really love and care for you. And while our relationship with God was originally beautiful and filled with trust, we lean into this lie that we can be more like God without God. And none of our problems in our own lives, in our relationships, and in the world will ever get better as long as we believe this voice of the snake. And this voice that says that God is taking something away from us, when really he's the source of life and love and true vulnerability. And this is all really heavy and uncomfortable to sit with, 
But unless we catch the heaviness of our situation, we completely miss who Jesus is and his goodness, because God doesn't leave us there sitting in our fig leaves and hiding from him. Which brings us to this question of, what is the hope in this? We see the answer to this and how God responds to Adam and Eve after they run into their shame and hide and cover themselves. First, we see how God pursues them in verse 9. He calls to them, he seeks them, and he finds them. We hide, God seeks, and God is seeking you even now. Secondly, we see God waging war against sin and evil and the devil. We might have broken the world, but God is committed to buying it back and buying us back. In the last verses of this passage, verses 14 and 15, God turns to the serpent and curses him and says he will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your his yeah, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what God is saying here is that he'll put enmity or war and death and life conflict between an offspring of Satan and an offspring of the woman. And this offspring will crush Satan's head and Satan will crush the woman's child's heel. And friends, this is God promising us that he will defeat the deceiver and save us through the son of Eve and God, who is Jesus. And Jesus, who is the Savior, lived with us and walked with us and died on the cross for our shame, for our pride, for our blame shifting, for our avoidance, and for all of our sin. And he rose again and is seated with God the Father in heaven. And God is saying here that while Satan is inflicting a wound, Jesus is taking all of our muck on the cross, and then he will come again and crush Satan forever. While Jesus is taking a blow, it doesn't crush him, and he will come again to crush death and pain once and for all. And this hope is not just something we wait for, it's something we can find joy in every day. And thirdly and finally, in Genesis 21, which comes after the passage we read tonight, we read that um, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And this is the first time that innocent blood has been shed, to take skins of animals and cover them. And this first time innocent blood has been shed was to cover God's children's shame and nakedness. And in the same way, Jesus, his precious blood is shed for us on the cross to give us, to cover us in his salvation and love. He not only cares about the shame we feel, but he wants to hold it and take it from us too. This means we can speak to God and we don't have to pull down imaginary blinds to God and say like, you can't see this because the wall doesn't go anywhere. He can see right over it. And as a pastor in New York City puts it, Tim Keller, if you want God's grace, you need need, all you need is nothing. And if you walk away with anything tonight, I want you to know that God cares about you and God wants to come and walk with you in everything that you're walking in. He sees you, he knows you, and he's safe to come to. One of my favorite books, The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis, which is part of the Narnia series. I listen to a lot of children's books when I go to bed. It's great, 10 out of 10. Um, uh, There's a scene when the main character, Diggory, comes face-to-face with Aslan, who's the lion that represents God. And he's able to ask him about his mother, who is facing near-death sickness. And he asks him, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give something that will cure mother? Up until now, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. 
but he saw surprise to him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down, near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's face. They were big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. And the lion tells him, my son, my son, said Aslan, I know, grief is great. While our grief and our pain and our shame feel so heavy, they're never too big or too small, never too ugly or not ugly enough to bring to God. And if you're here tonight, and you're not sure where you stand with God and are confused like all of us usually are, what are you going to do with your shame? And what would stepping out of hiding look like? Whether you know who Jesus is or not, what would coming to him look like instead of covering it up and hiding? What Jesus has in store for you and for me is a lot better than the funky mirror on the back of your dorm room door. I promise. And he's a God that finds us and loves us. Let's pray.